On this episode of Treasure Mountain Podcast, we have a guest who has been a mentor to me and remains a personal friend. Dennis Shepherd has been involved in the Buddhist community since 1978. Joining the Buddhist Society of Western Australia as a young man interested in meditation and spiritual practice, and going on to serve multiple terms as president of the society, as well as serving in several other capacities, including designing several buildings for both monastics and the lay community. He has also been the main wedding celebrant uh, for the Buddhist Society for many years. In addition to his decades of service with the Buddhist Society of WA, Dennis has worked as a building designer for several decades, and he has a part-time practice as a hypnotherapist, specializing in past lives and stillness healing. He also has many other hobbies, including astronomy, astrophysics, and poetry. I've invited Dennis onto the episode, um, to this episode of Treasure Mountain Podcast for a very specific reason. In my research in recent weeks, I've come across dozens, if not hundreds, of small Buddhist communities in Western countries that are in their early stage of development. I myself am trying to establish a Buddhist community in the region where I live, so I know how challenging this task can be. Because we can all learn from those who have gone before us, I've invited Dennis onto the show to talk about his recollections of the early years of the Buddhist Society of Western Australia, from the late 1970s to the late 1990s, a time in which the association grew from an enthusiastic but rather small group of lay volunteers to a much larger, more diverse community running regular events uh, and running both a city centre and large monasteries, and much more besides. Dennis has been part of that journey from the early years, and I can't think of anyone better to tell this story. So join us as we find out about the early years of the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. G'day, Dennis. Thanks for joining the podcast. How are you this day? I'm very well, thank you, Sol. Good to, good to see you. Well, I'm really pleased that you came along, um, and I think we'll just get straight into it. I was wondering if you could start off by telling uh, your story about how you first came to be involved in the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. Yes, well, I, I was uh, travelling as a very young man. We, I um, went in, went on a on the usual trip that Australians often do to the UK uh, in my uh, early 20s. Uh, met, in fact, I met my wife, my first wife, on, on the ship going over uh, to the UK. And, uh, you know, we spent three years over there and it was really right in the time of um, the Beatles and Carnaby Street and all of those uh, funky happenings, if you like, and... and Meditation was just one of those things that was was really, um, uh, you know, on the upward swing. But I kind of saw it really from a point of view of being a, a person who was originally, as a, as a very young person, interested in religion. And uh, I sort of got involved in Sunday school and church and the choirs and 
all of that sort of thing. But really, over the, the the journey of my youth, I kind of lost a lot of that. Mainly, I think, mainly because of testosterone that was sort of coming along, and uh, <laughs> the, the way that uh, the way the girls and and all of that sort of fun stuff, rock and roll, were was sort of taking my interest, and so. The uh, when I was when I was in England, I kind of noticed and started to be around people who did sort of have, do this meditation. I knew nothing about Buddhism really, but somewhere along the line there, uh, I I did start to hear about Buddhism, and there were certain certain people that were telling me all about it, and I kind of realised that this meditation was really something that I could really uh, work with. You know, I I think. What it was is that I kind of realised how important it was to uh, to self reflect. Just and then I became political. I came back to Australia then, and then I became quite political, uh, venturing into the left wing of politics. Really, I was sort of involved in uh, in all that was happening around the Labor government here in Australia when that first came in with Gough Whitlam, and you know there was Kim Beasley and my. Uh, my group is a fairly famous kind of a Labor politician um, in, in South Perth here where I live. So, you know, I really got involved in that. And then and then came, uh, you might remember, Malcolm Fraser mm, come, yeah. come along in the third year of the Whitlam government. And uh, there was all, because, I mean, this was the first time that a Labor government had been in Australia for 23 years, I think it was. And uh, the conservative element were really quite narked about the whole thing. And there were some terrible things that they were, well, in my perception anyway, with what they were doing to the, the government. And anyway, the, uh, the uh, Malcolm Fraser, who was the leader of the opposition, uh, kind of was running around everyone's, behind everyone's back and sort of talking to the Governor-General too, who was an appointee of the Labor uh, government at the time, he he sacked the government. Now I can remember being in my back room. I'd already started business for myself then. I, fortunately, uh, I had a uh, a, a man uh, who I worked with at, at an architectural firm that I was working with, who who uh, looked after me. It was a time. Uh, it was a time when there was uh, when there was uh, a, a bit of a downturn going on, and I was kind of made redundant. But he let me buy a lot of equipment and stuff, and uh, the drawing boards and whatever information, whatever material I needed really to start business, which I did. So I was sitting out the back of my home. I was working from home, doing sort of like private jobs, if you like. Then, when all of this happened with the government, and I can just remember sitting there, and I just, I just felt so angry. I was just seething. See, I just. It's very hard to explain. I was just so angry. I was boiling over nearly. And I know that in that moment, and I think a lot of other Australian people might have, might have felt that at the, this at the time too, but if there was a mob going down the street, I think I would have joined them. I was just so angry, so uh, furious that this had been done to the Labor government. And for those who are listening, uh, maybe outside Australia, where what Dennis is referring to is the dismissal of the Labor government which was a constitutional crisis. And, of course, a lot of people were very, very upset about it, and that's what Dennis is talking about. <laughs> Please go on, Dennis. Yeah, well, it's, it was like that. But, I, but in a very strange way, because I had already started to do meditation, I had this 
epiphany, really, where I could see that my anger was part of the problem. I kind of <laughs> saw in a very clear and precise way that going outside to sort of burn buildings down in Perth or whatever it was <laughs> I've been planning to do was not a very wise thing to do. And I could see that the problem was with me. I could see the problem of the anger that I was feeling was with me. And uh, really from that moment on, uh, I really doubled down on, uh, on, on my practice and I found the Buddhist Society uh, that was a fledging, a little fledging group here in 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 Perth. I'd already sort of been started to starting to go along to them, and and learning uh, bits and pieces from there. And I might say too, in a very, in a way, very fearful too. I was very fearful at the time too. There was a group of people they called them the Moonies. I don't know. Probably people everywhere in the world would know about them. They were Korean groups of people that. And they were—they had this ability to uh, to hijack people, and and because they were more or less very cultish, and and these people sort of got got involved in these cult programs, and there was parents that were very upset about their children being sort of taken over uh, by these people, and you might remember too, Sol, at the time that there was. Uh, uh, I don't know, you're a bit younger than me, but maybe you don't remember this. But, but, I know who you're uh, referring to. <laughs> I, I, yeah, the, the, um, there was families that were hiring soldiers and detectives and people to sort of go into these little cult organisations and snatch their children back. And, they, and there was, they had de- even had deprogramming centres that they would, would take their children to very forcibly hmm. and... Uh, and Try so, to program them. So you were concerned that maybe you were getting involved in a cult? Yeah, very much so. Well, I, I, I was kind of very fearful of my mind. I kind of thought, oh, you know, if, if you, if, you know, if somebody's going to brainwash me, you know, uh, well, I, you know, could I end up like that? It was a, it was a sort of a feeling like that. But I remember going along to the Buddhist Society, and I remember this one way. I'll never forget her, her either. She was a young woman that I don't see that often now, but I've seen her around every now, now and then. But um, uh, her, her name was, uh, um, oh, I'm just trying to remember, just Slater anyway, uh, um, just trying to remember her first name. It doesn't, that doesn't really matter. But she, she was there and it was just the way that she kind of held me, I think, when I was kind of explaining this, this fear that I had. And uh, Kerry was a name, Kerry Slater, of course. And, um, yeah, I, I just sort of knew that it was, it was going to be all okay. Mm. So, you know, it was really from there that I just threw myself headlong into the practice. You know, it was shortly after that, about a year or so after that, that the monks started to arrive. Uh, before you go on, I, I mean, I, I think you've raised an interesting point. I mean, if you go back to the 1970s, um, Australia was just not that far past the white Australia policy and anything that was foreign was still looked upon with quite a bit of fear. And, of course, it was still the Cold War. I remember uh, one of the early presidents, I think it was, um, what was his name, Donald um, Kassam, was it? Donald Don Kassam, yeah, he was. He was he, he, I remember talking to him some years ago and he said that in the early years there were even ASIO agents, uh, for those overseas, ASIO is the 
spy agency like MI6 or or, or um, CIA, they you know they were they came along to some meetings to just to check that this wasn't a communist you know group that was seeking to infiltrate Australian society. So I guess one of the things about the early days is that it was that different, and there was people didn't necessarily understand what was going on. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, no, that, well, that, that was right. It was, uh, uh, yeah, there, there was a lot of fear, a lot of fear about communism around there. And I think even, uh, uh, especially from the right-wing side of politics, they, there was, uh, because they were, the, the ASIO and all of those people are always more interested in the left-wing side. They never really followed up much on the right-wing side of politics. Mm. But in fact, in Australia, there was at that time, uh, a Yugoslavian right-wing group that were actually training mercenaries and and people who were firing guns and learning how to do all of that out in the bush. And, uh, you know, ASIO sort of missed that. They ended up catching up with it at all. But uh, but that was too, again, uh, mainly due to the, 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 the change of government into Labor at that particular time. I think yeah. I, I think it's interesting that you reflect upon that about you how you've got involved in politics and and I guess you felt very passionate about it and uh, uh, I think especially as a young person in the seventies how could you not be uh, drawn to uh, you know the Whitlam government and all the you know the flurry of changes that were happening at the time uh, but one thing that strikes me about what you told me is that it's nothing as much has changed <laughs> we're, we're st- <laughs> you know we're still dealing with um, you know people who still feel passionately about politics uh, and I just wanted to actually dig down on that question because you said that you reflected upon uh, having done some meditation you reflected upon how you felt and how your anger was part of the problem and I just was thinking about how often in Buddhist communities there's this ongoing discussion about well you know you shouldn't just sit on the cushion you should get involved you should be an actively engaged Buddhist who's going to go and change because there's all these problems in the world. Mm. Um, I was wondering about your perspective on that. Um, you know, is what what is the priority from your opinion and your, your experience? Is all of these political goings on, is it always just something that's always going on and can't be solved or should we get actively engaged or, or is our priority to get to meditate first? With, with the be- benefit of experience, what do you think? Oh, definitely to meditate first and to, uh, you, you know, to, under, to understand, because I think once the meditation starts to get deep, you, you, you do start to see that this world is really, uh, it's, it's really tricking us. It's, it's a delusion, what, what's going on out there. This world is being created inside our mind. Mm. And, and uh, this is a little bit difficult, I think, for people to, uh, to see in the first instance, but we all have a personal world, you know, whenever mm. we, whenever, and this is what meditation shows you, you've got a, your world is a personal one. Your, the way that, the way that you use your consciousness to, um, uh, to look onto things, when really even that is the wrong way around to say it, when we kind of sit meditation, where this space and time world, this world of dukkha, as the Buddha talks about, this world of duality, uh, we're looking through this lens, this lens of duality, and we're looking back onto our consciousness, and our consciousness is being formed around that uh, that lens of dukkha, the duality that the Buddha talked about in his first noble truth. And that duality, as long as we're looking through this lens of space and time, 
that duality will never change, just as the, as the Buddha said. Dukkha is here with us as long as we're kind of, uh, we're, we're viewing the world through that portal. Hmm. Uh, and it's only when you get sort of deeper into the whole process of this, once you start getting into see where the mind actually is and what the mind actually is, that you, you really do start to understand how it is that we're all involved in this magical experience that we're all uh, we're all inside here. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's it's. I mean, there's certainly places and times when when you do need to stand up and do something, and there's some wonderful examples of all of that. But um, in, you know, in the in the world, but essentially, um, I think if we're going to be uh, really doing that properly, we need to have the wisdom. Of, of knowing just what it is that we're involved with first to uh, to understand. And, and that this would be true too for everyone, especially politicians. Mm. You know, when we when you're trying to change worlds and a government or change, you know, you know, is is Vladimir Putin right or wrong? You know, he he seems to think that he's right in in mm. uh, in doing what he's doing in, in the Ukraine. But yeah, I mean, from my perspective, it's does, it doesn't look very wise to do what he's doing. But, you know, he's clearly, uh, he's, he's got his world. He's looking through his lens. And oh, that's certainly. what we've got to see. Yeah, certainly. No, I think that's well put. Um, and I think uh, I think your original statement also holds is that meditate first, get to know the mind first. Mm. Because if you act out of anger, or greed or anything that distorts that lens of how we see the world, as you said, then the way we act is going to be potentially quite harmful. Mm. So, um, okay, look, let's get ourselves back on track and start talking a bit about the early days of the Buddhist society. And you were saying, um, you were about to say about the time when um, the monks first came, and I guess this is something I think our listeners would be very interested in because you were around in the... Um, late 70s and early 80s, and there was a plan to invite uh, English-speaking disciples of Ajahn Chah to come to Perth. What do you remember about that time? Yeah, well, I can. I had joined the society before all of that really came into being, and it was uh, really a wonderful little, when I think back on it, a wonderful little group of people, our society, the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. I think it was. It would be probably true to say that we always intended to be Theravadi, or there was a leaning towards that way. But but even so, at that time there were still uh, invitations being put out to people from the Mahayana groups, and also uh, the Zen groups. There was a one particular Zen man that used to come come quite a lot to to give teachings, and it was very was very useful to hear him. But in the end, I think, and I, not, I wasn't really even involved in anything like that. I was really still looking in a little bit from the outside of all of this. But I can remember, you know, people like Lynn Jackson and uh, and sort of certainly Don Cassum. He was the president, the man that you mentioned there before, when when the monks, the monks first um, first arrived. But anyway, they, and there was a man called Vichai too that. Um, he was sort of very much involved in all of this. In fact, the 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 people that I uh, that I um, seem to remember mostly of going there was um, uh, there was there was a group of five people that actually decided that they would go to Thailand, and I don't think they were necessarily even 
uh, intent on going to visit Ajahn Chah. At that point, Lynn Jackson tells me that I didn't really know of Ajahn Chah. Uh, but, but her and this man, Vichai, and then there was uh, uh, Janine Pretty and Ian Doranen, who, uh, who was part of the group. There was one other lady, and I just, just don't really remember her name. But anyway, they, they visited uh, Thailand and they went round all of the mon monasteries in Bangkok just to see if they could find anyone that might send a monk. And it, wasn't, it was not very fruitful for them, apparently, there. But they did hear while they were, they were, while they were uh, moving around in Bangkok about Ajahn Chah. So they actually went up to Ajahn Chah's monastery. And uh, I think he was very, very uh, receptive uh, for them. And, you know, they had realised then that this, this monastery, Wat Pa Pong, had, had, uh, had started up an international monastery. And, in fact, there was this man, Ajahn Chah, who was very, very famous, very, you know, very few people in the world that you could say you think might be uh, on the Enlightenment side of the board. But I think Ajahn Chah might have been, have been there. You know, he was, uh, he was a very, very wise monk and a beautiful teacher too. But he, he, had, he was teaching Western people uh, in, a, in a monastery, an international monastery, he called it. And he had them separate so that they could learn how to be abbots and learn how to run monasteries. So it was really, he was really just waiting for this to happen, I think, Ajahn, Ajahn Chah. Uh, and in fact, later on, if we've got time, I'll just tell you a story about when I went there with Ajahn Brahm one time, um, where uh, one of the monks there was telling me that he showed me a photo of Ajahn Chah and him smiling and, and he said it was just after Lynn and the team went there, you know, so he was <laughs> so happy. He was so happy to, to have them all there. But, they were, you know, they, they went away, though, with a little bit not necessarily knowing what was going to happen. Uh, they made the invite and he, he just said to them, well, you know, you'll need to learn how to look after monks and what to do and so on. And so they, they went home and... Um, and were thinking about it, and then all of a sudden, just out of the blue, they got a, uh, a message to say that they'd be arriving tomorrow, two monks. <laughs> wow. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was such a, I think Don Cassim at the time too, he didn't really appreciate that um, these monks were coming, uh, you know, for the long term. And, and to our great um, uh, joy, uh, one of the monks was, was Ajahn Jagaro. And Ajahn Jagaro had been, you know, the, I think that was beyond the team's wildest dreams because he, at the time, was was the abbot of the this international monastery that Ajahn Chah was uh, had set up. And um, Ajahn Jagaro arrived with another monk called Ajahn Peruso, and uh, they were they were together here for about a year, I suppose. But Ajahn Jagaro was a well, the whole thing was a game changer, really. Uh, because well, I remember myself sort of being, I don't know how my wife ever put up with it, but I was over there just about every night kind of meditating and listening to their stories and listening to the Dharma and sort of listening to the, to the wisdom that was being um, told to me there. And, and it was, you know, it was really, they were, they were nights of wonder. I kind of uh, look back on that time as, uh, although it was, I was really just, just starting to, de to develop the whole thing. Unfortunately, it was very difficult for these monks to live in the house that we had because we had bought a, uh, just before the team went over to Thailand, we'd, we'd arranged to buy a house in Magnolia Street, North Perth. 
And there was still a huge mortgage that we owed on it at the time. Uh, but the and I just remember what just need, need to say perhaps for this for this uh, for the accuracy of this tape too that there was a man called Warren Smales and his and his wife who um, put up the money to buy that house. Really, they put up <laughs> the money. I mean, and I and I don't know. I just think of the courage that it must have taken to do that for them because we didn't really have much of a deposit at all. It was a time when you know the loans were available, but. Anyway, that's that's what he did, and Warren Smiles died a couple of years ago now. But uh, yeah, I did go and see him a, a little bit before he died, and uh, yeah, he was always uh, always a wonderful man. And his wife Karen, she's uh, she's still around, and also their children still come around as well. So it sounds to me like uh, the like some of the circumstances around the establishment were quite fortuitous. I mean, it you, like going to Thailand, not knowing, you know, who you're going to invite and then just happening to find Ajahn Chah who's out in the northeast and then Ajahn Chah happens to be very happy to welcome everybody and then you have someone who puts up money to buy a house that yeah. becomes like the first centre for the Buddhist. Yeah. So there's some yeah. Yeah, well, fortuitous yeah. things going on. <laughs> well, that's right. Just to clarify, he actually put his own house up as as, as a guarantee for our yeah. loan. So that's that's you know it was amazing really that he did that. He had the courage to do it, and uh, and just just while we're on that topic too, just so I don't uh, forget it. But a little bit later on, when we bought the monastery at Bodhinyana, there was a lady um, uh, called Diane Watson who uh, who who put the first substantial money up to buy that too. I mean, mm. before that, we were, we were all, you know, with Ajahn Jagaro and Peruso were living uh, in the house and it wasn't very conducive, that kind of living uh, there for them. And, and we were still really learning how to look after monks as well. And Peruso, he, 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 he really didn't, he, he couldn't take it, you know, after, you know, after nearly up, up to about a year, I think it was, he decided that he would go back to Thailand. He didn't want to stay, but Ajahn Jagaro and all of his uh, gritty determination and, and his kind of the way, I, when I'm just talking about it, I've just got this picture in my mind of him, this very neat Italian, uh, Australian Italian man who, um, uh, you know, he kind of, he, he was he was really, well, I, I mean, I, I think he he's, it was probably a little bit of, a, maybe even been a bit of a disappointment that he only had the one set of robes to, uh uh, you know, to, to use in his monastic order because he was kind of very fashionable in a way. You know, he kept, he, he, um, the way that even he rolled up his robes, you know, it was never ever loose or, you know, if you see Ajahn Ram around a bit, you know, like <laughs> sometimes the, the robes nearly falling off him and so on, but never like that with Ajahn Jagger. It was always neat and tidy and tucked in and rolled up and it was, you know, everything. And that was really how he was really right the way through. But anyway, um, uh, Peruso went back to, to Bangkok and Ajahn Chah sent out another monk and it just turned out to be Ajahn Brahm. Well, he was, he was always a lovely man, just a lovely, lovely man. And I, I just remember little stories like myself. I remember one time he was doing a funeral. He'd been asked to do a funeral and, and I went to pick him up and, and just 
my own kind of lack of mindfulness around monks, uh, I was uh, taking him there maybe about 9, 30, 10 o'clock in the morning and, and, and then he was finished the funeral and then we were coming home. It was about 11.30 or so. And the truth is that he should have, you know, I, I, I should have really been able to stop somewhere and get some a meal for him or something like that, but I'd forgotten all about it. I just didn't sort of appreciate it. But when we got back, it was about five minutes to 12, you know, and he only had about five minutes left. And Jagero said to him, have you had your lunch? Have you had your meal yet? And he said, no. But Ajahn Brahm didn't tell me either. He didn't sort of say, well, you know, it's... Uh, but I'd sort of forgotten one of the things that I remember that I'll, uh, I was always, uh, um, you know, really left wanting there, really, to, to, to look after him in that way. But anyway, we did manage to find uh, things in the, in the fridge at Magnolia Street for him to sort of quickly wolf down while, before, while he still had time to eat before the, uh, the rules of discipline stopped him from doing so. But anyway, there was all those little... Uh, things like that that we were all involved with, but just maybe the story I was telling you the other day too about Ajahn Jagero. Just for, for us, for the lay people, I mean, we'd never seen monks like this. You know, we'd never seen people who were dedicated to practice in that way, and it was just so uh, beautiful to see. I, I, and and also, I was you know even a bit skeptical. You know, are these people for real? Are they, are they really for real? And mm. I used to sort of sometimes just. Watch Ajahn Jagra when he was on a bindabata. Not he didn't get much food on a bindabata, but he, but he used to just walk really more for exercise. But I'd see him with his bowl and the way that he was walking around, and I used to sort of just watch where he couldn't see me and just just to see, you know, is he is he really doing this sort of right and is he fair dinkum, you know? And but he, you know his his actions and you know for all of them really they're just impeccable. It was just so impressive to see that. So, would you say that this was um, quite a bit of a game changer, having these uh, very uh, dedicated monks who were dedicated to their dis- the discipline, the vinaya, but also to to their practice of meditation? Do you feel like that was a really big game changer for the Buddhist society? Did right. it have an impact on upon people? Absolutely. You know, you just you, you just um, yeah, it was. It was really amazing. It was just amazing to see. And, and the, tr- the truth of what was happening, especially if you're meditating around them and you're sort of picking up a little bit of wisdom, you know, in your meditation as you're sort of sitting around them, the truth of this is just so compelling to have monastics and, uh, and their connection to the Buddha and the teachings and the, and the suttas. And, uh, and, you know, as you're gradually trying to, settle and relax because that's that's really just what the whole thing is you know it's just more or less you know meditation as you know is just that that ability to uh just not do anything the less the less you can do the better the meditation is you know Mm. (laughs) you just sort of stop and 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 the truth just appears in the stillness and uh it was just astonishing really to see how these people and the stories of, of Ajahn Chah and the other enlightened monks that they'd all, and, and, you know, the people that he taught, like Ajahn Buhr, and, and, well, he learned from Ajahn Man, you know, and these are these people are legendary in Buddhist terms, you know, they're all mm. so wise and so, uh, you know, so... Um, it's almost like opening up 
whole new world. Because um, a moment ago, you were telling us about how, I guess, like many young Australians in the 70s, you're getting quite preoccupied with the politics of the time. And then mm. all of a sudden, you open up to this whole new world of spiritual development and you know, how far you can go to the mind, into, into the mind and this whole new way of conduct. And well, as you say, there's just it seems, sounds to me like a whole new world was opening up for you and perhaps for many others. Oh, definitely, yeah. There was, and, you know, well, there's, I suppose there was many people that come along just as the Buddhist societies had many people come and go. But it just really at that point, though, it really solidified for me just the importance of having the monastics and having that, that lineage, the lineage that goes all the way back to the Buddha and even the, um, you know, you know the, the Buddhist society's idea ideas and um, uh, dreams were all about really re-establishing the, the order of nuns as well. So that was all there, you know, swirling around in, the, in, in, the, in those, those beginnings. But really when Ajahn Ram came along, it took him quite a few years, I think, to hit his straps. He was usually always sitting behind Ajahn Jagaro and Ajahn, Ajahn Jagaro was just such a personable monk and he, he was such a good Dharma teacher, so introspective as well. He kind of was self-effacing and uh, he, um, but he had a, a, had a strong guidance because the, I suppose the very first thing that happened after that, after we got the, the, um, the monks there and we had the house sort of operating properly, oh, perhaps I should go back and just tell you though a little bit about Prakanti Polo who was there before the monks actually came, it was, because it wasn't necessarily true that we didn't have monks. But Prakanti Palo was a monk who lived in Sydney, uh, and uh, he used to come and really treat Perth a little bit like his diocese there. Mm. This was probably just before. Was he visiting from time to time? Oh, all, all the time. Yeah, he, he visited quite a lot, and he would stay sometimes for two or three months. Mm. I can still remember him... Um, uh, standing on a ladder out up on up against the gable end of the of the house in the thirty nine Magnolia Street, uh, hammering up a, a dharma wheel onto the onto the gable end, his robes flowing in the wind and the hammer. Going. <laughs> he was a, he was really quite something. He was he was a bit fierce, um, you know. When you went because he, he used to conduct a lot of retreats here for us. Um, but he kind of didn't, uh, he, you know, you, if you were going to move around a lot and fidget, you know, he asked you not to be close near, nearby. <laughs> he didn't like that when you were nearby him. But he was, uh, you, you know, one of the one of the people that sort of was, was really introducing Dharma in a big way here in Perth. And, and I think, too, was the catalyst to sort of make us go down the Theravadan route Mm. rather than sort of looking at some of the other forms of Buddhism. And, gee, that's something that, too, I can say that I really enjoy. I mean, not that I quite like uh, the Mahayana approach, but I do find it a bit too uh, a bit too flowery, a bit too messy. You know, it's not um, it's not as spare as as what the Theravadan approach is. And, and I, I fully understand that both approaches have their fans and some people do need to have that ornateness that's around the Mahayanan tradition to, uh, you know, to be able to sort of settle into the true message because the messages are the same. But, but you could say really that the, uh, 
the the culture around them is different. My impression is, I'd like to hear your your opinion on this, my impression of the early days of the Buddhist society is that it leaned more towards Theravada because of the proximity to Asia. Now, that works in two ways. One is that um, when we had um, uh, monks or people who wanted to become monks, they would go to Southeast Asia because that's what was close. But also, and I did want you to ask you about this as well, is that it sounds to me like we had um, uh, Southeast Asian people uh, who had migrated, and not just, and also South Asians. So we had, would have had Thai people and um, uh, Sri Lankans and so forth um, involved from the very early days. So they were always an integral part of the society, and that, that was a major factor. Uh, what What is your opinion on that? Oh, I, I think I think you're pretty. You know, that, that's accurate. What you're saying there. I mean, our first president was Professor Jayasuriya, who was he was a. a, a, a social services professor at the university and he used to um he used to know a lot about Pali, the Pali language and that too so he was very influential and uh yeah there was many other people like that too but but having said that as well there were the uh the Mahayanan people there and I think because it's it's a bit interesting really because in the on the west coast of Australia maybe you're right with the proximity to Asia we are a little bit closer to Asia but Asia but over in Sydney and you know, if you think about our Australian Broadcasting Commission, if ever they've got anything to ask on Buddhism, they always they always seem to find a Mahayana um, mm. uh, spokesman, and that's fine too. I mean, the uh, there's not uh, you know, but I, I guess in the you know, and, and as you know, right at the moment, I'm actually just attending a, a Mahayana temple at the moment to try and learn a little bit more about their the way that they do things, especially about um, this, this idea that they have of bodhisattvas, which, uh, you know, is a very, very nice idea. But I'm not, I'm not, don't know, but personally I'm convinced, <laughs> you know, about about all of that. So, um, but, I'm, but I certainly respect and understand, you know, why they, why that might necessarily be so, especially with the Dalai Lama, you know, supposedly, uh, you know, rebirthing all of the time to, to come back, although I just do note too that he's said that he's not going to he's not going to be reborn again uh, when he dies this time because because of what China has um, has done to the to the you know to the culture there in Tibet. But uh, uh, wouldn't just but do you feel that uh, because there's always this ongoing debate of ideas between Mahayana and Theravada? But don't you feel that there was something else that was going on in terms of establishing? Uh, Theravada, which was that personal contact, and you know, being impressed by how it feels to be with someone like um, not just Ajahn Chah, because you know, some people met him, but Ajahn Jagaro and his conduct and his the way he taught that was what made the difference. Yeah, is no, that, I, I, am I right about that, or is that? Oh, what do you I, think? well, you know, because all all of that was after the fact that you know, because the the decision was made before. <clears throat> The monks even came to to go to a Theravadan country. We, we were definitely not going to a, a Mahayanan country to try and hmm. uh, to try and bring monks from there. So it was uh, we were definitely conditioned, I think, to you know to, to go that way, and, and that's certainly why they went to Thailand. Um, I, I guess you know from my perspective, I was kind of just I was I was really just trying to understand it all at the time. I you know I 
kind of appreciated what the Zen teachers that used to come all of the time were saying, and uh, and also the, you know, the the monks from the Mahayana tradition that were there from time to time. But I think in the heart of it, there, were, there was always in and around the Buddhist society for as long as I can remember the Pali Canon. So, mm-hmm. And that probably did come from Professor Jayasurya and, and mm-hmm. all, of the, um, all of that influence that came from the Sri Lankan side of things and, and, and certainly the Thai side of things. There wasn't that many Thais there at the time. It was, mo- <coughs> excuse me, it was really mainly, uh, mainly Sri Lankans, I think. But uh, anyway, be that as it may, we, we certainly made the, the choice to sort of go down the, the Theravadan route and from my personal perspective, I really uh, am so overjoyed, really, that they went that way because I, you know, I just kind of love the spareness of it. You know, the way that it just goes directly to the, mm. the practice and, and the teaching just takes you directly there. It's not um, mm. there's no sort of going around the roundabouts. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on a little bit and let's think about that time during the 1980s and into the early 1990s. I mean, um, for anyone who's listening who is either involved with a, an association which might be in its early years, uh, what were some of the challenges that the Buddhist Society of Western Australia faced at the time? And uh, you could even talk from your own perspective because I know you were involved um, after the acquiring of uh, the Dhammaloka Buddha Centre uh, in Nolamara and also Bodhnyana Monastery in Serpentine, you had something to do with the, the building. So w- what were your memories in terms of some of the challenges that were faced and how, how you overcame those? Well, I, yeah, I think the early challenges were really more about, um, you know, finding the money and, and just getting, you know, getting the wherewithal to, to be able to, um, you know, to, to buy and make things, these things work. And, and I... You know, I just do uh, remember Ajahn Jagaro's guidance at that time I think was really essential. I, you know, I think that he did steer us into a path of, you know, we've talked about and you know about the, the four pillars of Buddhism. You know, the, you know he was very uh, focused on that because there was a bit of a debate for a while of whether we should sell Magnolia Street to, uh, you know, to buy the monastery. But Ajahn Jagaro, you know, made a definite thing. He said, no, no, he said, no, we're going to keep the city centre for the lay, lay community. And, but we were looking at properties that were around about an hour out of Perth and uh, and just trying to find uh, enough money really to, or a place, you know, where the money the money and the place would sort of fit. But we found the the monastery in Kingsbury Drive in, in Serpentine. And as I'd mentioned, Diane Watson was one of the very first contributors that kind of gave us the heart to be able to put the money up as a deposit and then, and then uh, uh, you know, build the monastery. But I think that the money came quite quickly for that afterwards. The, you know, and, and to Jagero's uh, credit too, he, he never really wanted us or encouraged us all to to do this sort of in a cheap way. He was saying, oh, no, the, you know, that this practice needs to have solid a solid base, you know, not just... We're not just building anything flimsy here. We're going to build something that's, mm. uh, and that was sort of typical of his character. He kind of, um, he sort of held out to that. So we, we did, in the end, get, you know, quite substantial buildings that we built there and designed and built um, that were, and, of course, the, the, the monks 
put people putting their men putting their hand up to become monks was uh, they were very plentiful at the time, probably more than we could ever handle. But the monks, you know, and just thinking Ajahn Brahm at that time too, he was a, he was certainly a wag all the way through, you know, because when they when we first got the land and there was only one little building, one little shed that we'd had as a dismantable that we sort of put up there and we used to sort of do the dhanas and everything in there. Just the practice was only about a, th- a you know, four by three shed or something like that. And, uh, but Brahm, you know, he, he kind of using his initiative, you know, we went and got some sleepers and uh, a lot of plastic and, and he, he got a door and he was going to use that as his bed to sleep on. And, you know, it even had the, he didn't even bother to take the kind of the, uh, the panels out of it. You know, it was just a sort of a flat, a flat door that he was sleeping on. And then we got a, um, a half round um, water tank or a water tank and cut it in half, really. That's probably the right way to say it, to fit on top of these sleepers. So we dug a little hole in the ground, put the sleepers, so it was sort of half underground or about half a metre or so underground with the sleepers coming up and uh, and plastic all around it and then, and then the water tank on the top. And this was the first place where he and... Uh, I think that he he mostly stayed there, so I don't know that how many how many cooties we made like that. But um, uh, I think when Jagger was there, he probably stayed mostly in the in the house in the hut in that you know three by four meter hut that we had. But the first thing we built, of course, was the toilets. You know, just digging for the septic tanks. All that was done with our own labour and basically with donations of people who were bricklayers and plumbers and. And then we had a monk that came that was really very handy with um, you know, being able to use, make concrete and use concrete. So I think even to this day that a lot of those, uh, uh, the vanity basins and that were all kind of set up on a, on a, uh, a poured, an in-situ poured concrete um, um, uh, bench top that, that, that sort of contained it all. So all that was done pretty much on a shoestring, but then we gradually did start to get some proper money in, you know, to to build other things, and we gradually built the, the dining hall and and more cooties, and then we had a, an established model in for cooties, and cooties were always around about two point five by three meters long. They're always usually brick and uh, and with a tin roof, and and we'd always put a maybe twenty to twenty five meter. Uh, walking path in front of them, and eventually those, those at first at the first those walking paths were uncovered, but then we gradually uh, made them all covered so that the monks could sort of meditate and walk meditation, uh, you know, with, with with at least that kind of comfort. But then you know, as I say, the dining hall came and the kitchen, and bit by bit, it all sort of came together, and and then unfortunately, uh, Ajahn Jagaro. He, um, uh, well, when he, he left, he, he got, got to a place where he needed to disrobe. So that was, a you know, as you know, and I think that you maybe more or less want to kind of highlight that too because it was a big shock really when because he'd been here for a lot of years. So this is in the mid-1990s, about 1995, 96, I believe. Yeah, that's right. It was, um, yeah, it was... But how, how did that impact the community at the time? Well, it was a shock. It was a, because 
you know, he was he was kind of like a fundamental uh, foundation stone for for what we were doing. I mean, Ajahn Brahm by that time though had certainly started to hit his straps. I mean, his talks had improved, you know, immensely. Mm. It's hard hard to imagine. A time when Ajahn Brahm's talks were not very interesting or not very... <laughs> it's interesting. I, I think that's worth mentioning because I've heard some of the people who were there in the early days and they said Did, people didn't want to go to Ajahn Brahm's talks. No. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to go to Ajahn Jagaru's talks. Uh, it's, uh, I think from the perspective of today, that seems a little bit hard to imagine, but uh, that, that's what I've been told. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was really learning and you, can, you really see this the way that the way that the monastic order works, you know, the way that, mm. I mean, I think Ajahn Brahm was always, I mean, Ajahn, probably uh, worth noting to say again, as I've kind of written in many of the publications that the Buddhist Society have had, though, but I remember when J- Jagero uh, was, you know, we were first here, Peruso had gone back and Ajahn Brahm was coming, and he, you know, I remember Jagero saying to me, you wait till you meet him, you wait till you meet this Ajahn Brahm, he is a monk's monk. <laughs> you know it was and and you know when he did come he had that sort of sense of humor and not only that it was sometimes it was a bit of a bawdy sense of humor too <laughs> still is <laughs> yeah. sometimes he would say things that was really but at the heart of it though you would still see that he was just very very grounded and natural and uh and you know i guess you could see his potential you know the potential was there, I mean, and then there's the story. I think that, this is a really important point. I mean, uh, I don't want anyone to ever think that if you're inviting a monk or a nun to come and reside with your uh, community, that they're a finished product. And I guess one of the things to know is that if you invite a monk or a nun, and this is what your experience was, you've actually really got to um, nurture them and give them the conditions that they need to practice because they are still in the process of... of um, of doing their practice and of developing their their, uh, their inner capacity, I suppose. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and, and around about that time too, because Ajahn Brahm was a particularly good meditator, and you could see that he he loved to do that. He loved the isolation of med- meditation. Uh, but at the same token, I mean, as everyone knows, Ajahn Brahm certainly is a person that, mm. that uh, has the capacity to be with anyone. He's not... Before we go on, go on to talk about Ajahn Brahm's role, I just want to talk a little bit more about Ajahn Jagaro. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think was his um, you know, la- legacy, I suppose? Legacy. Or, 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 you know, ha- having left the Buddhist society uh, and gone, gone his own way, what do you feel like was his legacy at the Buddhist society? Well, I think he left a legacy of of a solid foundation. You know, that's how I see him. You know, and I, in whenever I look around the buildings and and certainly the parts that he was involved in, it just reminds me of the way he he looks in his robe. You know, it's mm. kind of neat, tidy, all rolled up tight, nothing kind of falling off. It's all um, attention to detail and yeah, yeah, meticulous. Very much so. I, I suppose it's like that Italian. An Italian mindset, if you like, you know the the. I'm not I'm not sort of meaning the showiness of it, but just the the you know good Italian shoes or good, you know, like mm. you, you kind of look at craftsmanship. You know, yeah, yeah, very much so. He, he certainly he had he had an eye for detail, and he he kind of made sure that we didn't 
do things in a second-rate way. And he kind of brought the whole society uh, in a way uh, towards that. And he had a Legend Jagero too had a had a very uh, strong emotional side to him as well. He you know, he felt things very deeply, hmm. and uh, yeah, I think that in in the end, I'm sure that all of that too will will see him in in uh, in very very good stead in terms of the Dharma. Uh, uh, um, if it hasn't already done that for him, I haven't really talked to him for a long time now, but. Um, yeah, he was. He was really. He can never be, never be really forgotten. I don't think in, in our Buddhist society's history, he he was really something very, very special. And he's, you know, his stories about Ajahn Chah, just the way that he that he saw. But I suppose the two perspectives. You know, when you listen to the way Ajahn Brahm saw his teacher and Ajahn Jagaro sees his teacher. There was, you know, because there was, you know, a difference in the way that they even they even saw that, uh, and uh, I think Jagero was a was was a person who was always uh, sort of grounded, but but there was a, there there was a real feeling, a real mm-hmm. feeling uh, that was there with, and, and it's only really just recently because I'm I'm saying that because. It's only just really in the last well, several years now, I suppose, in my own practice, I've realised how important all of that is, just how important it is to, you know, well, really the reason why the Buddha sort of set out the four Satipatthanas, you know, and starting off with mindfulness of body, mindfulness of the body, and then mindfulness of feelings. You know, when you uh, when you sort of see what he's, he's done that way, you sort of see the importance of, of just what he was meaning by that. And then the third Satipatthana, mindfulness of mind. Now, that realisation that you can actually experience mind in your body. The Buddha said, you know, that I've seen everything that I've uh, I've come to know or, or know inside this fathom-long length of body. So, you know, when you look at that, the third Satipatthana of mind, mindfulness of mind, and then mindfulness of the phenomena of mind. So that all of that can be kind of experienced and known inside this body. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, feeling is really very important to, and, and the more as the practice comes, the more subtle that feeling is. The you know the, the deeper you can go to understand just exactly what those resonances are in your body, and just start to see why why it is that, that we come to be how we are and why we're here. You know that sort of thing, the mystery of it all. Uh, um. So it was a big shock for uh, the community to have this uh, founding um, abbot and spiritual director, Ajahn Jagara, leave. How did the community adapt afterwards and, and what changed when Ajahn Brahm became spiritual director? Well, I mean, I think that it, it did, uh, there was maybe a year or so of, uh, of probably grieving, grieving a bit, you probably would say. But Ajahn Brahm at that point, though, had, there was really a, you know, from my perspective anyway, there was a real turn in his practice. He kind of, uh, Ajahn Brahm, at some point just before Jagaro left or at around about that time, he went very deep. Mm. Kind of, uh, and, you know, I can see that there was reasons for that too. We had some wonderful visitors coming from Thailand. We had Ajahn uh, Cha's cousin, Ajahn Gunha, came. 
and uh, and they stayed in our monastery for for uh, for some time. And I think that Ajahn Brahm, well, my observation of, of of him over that period was really that that he he uh, all of a sudden went from being a uh, maybe even just a, an intellectual kind of a because he, he he always had the capacity to study the suttas. He's always known the suttas pretty well, but he went from that kind of intellectual capacity to being the whole thing, you know, he's the feelings and the, you know, as I often think about it, I think of the head as the intellect and the and the heart as the emotional side. But, but somehow or other, Ajahn Brahm at that point had sort of became the, uh, the balanced package and his way of explaining and, uh, and understanding Dharma just, just, went through the roof. And I think that's probably around the time when you got involved too and started to, uh, you know, to pick all this up on the web and on you because the, the World Wide Web was, well, I don't think it was even in existing there, but in existence then, but when you came along and then started the, um, uh, you know, doing um, the, the, the websites and putting the talks online and things like that, I mean, that's when... All of that was just seemed to be right at the right time, and and he'd written written that book, you know, opening the door of your heart, of your heart, mm-hmm. and that was a that turned out to be a world's bestseller. <laughs> and, uh, the whole thing just sort of started to fly. So after a a bit of a shock and a period of grieving, things started to really go from strength to strength from that time onwards. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Um. Drawing it all together now um, and looking back over that period of time from, you know, the early 80s or even from the late 70s through to the uh, late 90s, what do you think? I mean, we should say this was a period of tremendous growth in the Buddhist society, Um, uh, but it could have gone either way. As you know, it wasn't always, um, you know, that people were terribly well prepared or knew what was coming next. Um, but what do you think were the factors that led to success during this period of time? Well, I, I, I think too, it's probably just one little thing that I could maybe <clears throat> insert just uh, in before that, before Ajahn Jagaro left. I mean, because when Ajahn Jagaro was here, we rebuilt Dharma Loka, the city centre. <clears throat> now, that, that was done uh, really again on a shoestring. I can remember having what we called a hamburger club where we were all sort of contributing $3.00. Uh, a week, which was, you know, just offhand saying at the time it was a price for a couple of cups of coffee or something, uh, and uh, just to, just to pay for that mortgage of uh, of, bu- of buying Dharma Loka up in Nolamara. So we'd sold the house in Magnolia Street, bought uh, the it was an Anglican church, an Anglican church, and a and a. A residence uh, for the minister that was there. We bought those two properties. There was another big property that went with the land, that went with the, these buildings, and, and made it quite a big stretch of land there in Nolamara. And we really immediately started to think about building a Dharma hall there. And this was going to take a lot of resources, a lot of money, and we'd already established to, to an extent the Bodhinyana monastery, but. Jagger at that point of time, you know, he certainly focused on the um, on this building of Dharma Loka, and and uh, there was sort of several people, you know, like for instance, Ron Battersby, who was a, sort of a, one of the key members of our society. He 
his company, we, you know, he arranged with his boss that he would be the cheapest price. <laughs> and Ron, Ron Battersby ended up being the the labour labour in charge of the building for this company, Chippendale Constructions, it was. So his boss let him let him come to build this, and uh, I mean, I remember sort of watching him sort of doing things and. You know, we, we really got the best of what <laughs> of what you could expect in, in terms of a building. He he uh, he managed to do everything so perfectly. It sounds we, to me like that. You know, there was a fair bit of um, sacrifice and and giving was a major factor oh, that uh, helped helped this succeed. And maybe also a little bit of faith, because it sounds like you took on these. You borrowed money to buy land to. Yeah. Build you know new like new dharma halls etc. And at each step of the way, when you did this, it sounds like you really weren't sure where the money was going to come from, and yet that constant generosity seemed to get things paid off. Would yeah. you say? Yeah, that, no, that's true. And, and certainly the uh, the local membership was growing by then, so there was a you know we had a fair base to sort of draw from from the. From there, but but also just the connections that both Ajahn uh, uh, Jagaro and Ajahn Brahm had back in uh, in Thailand was very important too. I think the farmer bank over there, they they were kind of watching us. You know, there was several because I mean Thailand was very interested in what was happening here. Only well, mainly because you know it was there monks that had been our monks that had been trained in Thailand and they were interested just to see how the whole thing was growing and there was a, a lot of money too came through through that avenue we used to get visits from uh, from Asia we had busloads of people sometimes coming down from Thailand and all around that were organized where people would come through and crikey the donations that sometimes I left were eye-watering it was really Mm. It's just amazing to see because it really didn't take that long to pay off the uh, the the loan that we had on on uh, on uh, on Dharma Loka. So yeah, you just really need to acknowledge all of those those considerations there as well. But the but the local membership too was just uh, just amazing, really, in the way that everything came together. So that when Dharma, so Dharma Loka was was certainly well and truly established by the time that Edgar Jagaro uh, uh, disrobed. Mm. So what other was there apart from generosity and sacrifice and 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 I guess faith to you know go ahead with these projects, not knowing for sure whether things would get paid off? Uh, were there any other factors that you think were really um, supportive, or that led to? The growth and success of of the community and the Buddhist society during that period of time. Yeah, well, I think the, the main the main thing was really just the because you know by that time Ajahn, Ajahn Brahm had used his uh, his magic personality to sort of reach out into all sort of facets of the of the Perth community. You know, he started to know the politicians, and they all liked him. You know, they were, as they still do. You know, they. Ajahn Brahm as a and, he, and and all of the other religions that were here in Perth, he was sort of making contact with all of them, and the monastery was was zooming along. That was sort of growing, and um, all of that was was happening. And uh, so, but but I think essentially what I would say was the the factor 
that made all of this work. And when I and when I look at this and compare it to say some of the other Buddhist groups that are in Perth, which are are all going along okay, but maybe not on the same level as what the BSWA turned out to be. But I would say the main factor was that the people that interacted with us, whether it was governmental, whether it was people that were maybe potential donors or anyone that was sort of interacting could see the way that the monastics and the lay community were practising. You know, that you could see, they, they could see that there was nothing uh, uh, that was yeah, where we were trying to sort of pull the wool over anybody's eyes or anything like that or trying to to spin things to get things, you know, the way uh, to get things for maybe what we wanted. People would come in and they would see the sincerity, the, the impeccable nature, the impeccable conduct of the monks and the way and the way that they are all trained, actually, because I mean, I mean, Ajahn Jagger and Ajahn Brahm, you know, they're they're really everyone is sticklers to make sure that all new monks and now nuns that sort of come in are, are kind of grounded in that gratitude for what they receive from the lay people and uh, you know, and the and to know that you know that the payment for that really is. The personal practice, you know, to make that practice uh, so so good, and I think that's really why these four foundations of Buddhism uh, will—that's the order of monks, the order of nuns, the order of male laymen, and the order of lay women—will always be such a, a necessary foundation to to make something last, uh, to make it grow, and to make it last. Really, that's the. I think that's been the key for the Buddhist society. Really, mm. yeah. Thank you very much for that wise reflection upon um, the development of the Buddhist society. Uh, I wanted to finish up with asking you about your personal experience. I mean, you're someone who came along with a, I guess, a curiosity about meditation, but you didn't just stay. You really put a lot of your own time and effort into um, this venture and it uh, must have been very difficult at times, I've no doubt. Uh, what has been your feeling? Why, why have you stuck with it and what have you gotten out of this on a personal level? Well, I think, I think being with wise people um, is, is gold, actually. Just, just mm, well said. Gold. You know, when you're... When you're um, because I mean, this—the way that a human being is conditioned—is really so—it's—it's—it's it's, it's so skittish. You know, you could—you can be one way one moment and, and another way the next. <clears throat> you know, this is just the way that conditioning is. I mean, you just see today with the way social media works. You know, and the way that um, even now, where you know you—you you know, and and this—you know—I can see too that there's some truth in 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 the way that this works, but. But I've, without sort of being critical of Donald Trump, you know, you can see that he's got a he's got his personal view of the world. You know, his his portal into consciousness uh, is is the way that it is, and he's a very sort of powerful uh, spokesman for for what he thinks. So he, in a way, can sort of condition people so well, especially people that are that are ready to hear. You know, if you're kind of disaffected. In any way, and you're kind of looking around for someone to blame. 
you know, you can get someone like that coming along in the same way that it happened maybe in the 1930s, just when when Hitler was coming to power too. And, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, you, you get someone who's a bit charismatic and can and can sort of pick up on on issues or troubles that you might be having or a country even might be having in their lives. In, and they can just model, sort of change the, the way that a whole... Uh, you know, a whole, I'm, I'm thinking of a flock of birds, you know, because, you, you, you know, just just, just to, going with that um, uh, analogy a bit, you know, you can look at a bird and, you know, you can sort of study it well, its wings and it's, you know, the way that it's got a beak and it's got its feet and its feathers and everything like that. And you can find out all about that. But you never really know what a, uh, what a bird that you've studied and known. When, when you get a group of birds, a whole big group of birds, and then they get together, all of a sudden there's a consciousness that sort of takes over from them and you can see the way that they they soar and they fly and they and it's just you know that that beauty of that that joined consciousness that that way that the whole flock of birds even though that each bird is an individual uh, component of that flock they fly in in sort of one conscious movement and that's that's we're so vulnerable to that ourselves. We don't kind of recognise it, I don't think. But you know, people like what I'm saying there, where, where you get a sort of a very uh, charismatic or a, you know a person that can sort of take that consciousness and and then sort of bring it in. The you know, and I think scientifically too, there's the physicists now starting to look at that too, just to looking at the mechanisms that make all of that work. But um, all of that is sort of true for us. You know, we, this consciousness can be so fickle and, you know, all of a sudden something that you think is true is no longer true. It's a lie or it's a fake lies or, you know, fake news, all of this sort of stuff. And, and it is very difficult to know where, where the truth is because, you know, as we know because of dukkha, because of the way dukkha is, we know that everything has, a, has an element of truth in it. You know, you can never ever say that anything is is absolutely wrong, because that's just the way that dukkha is. Dukkha is, has got this duality in there. You know, if you're going to grab and hold on to one side of of a, of a feeling, or whether it's a, you know, it doesn't matter really what it is, a, 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 a material element, the other side of it is going to be there. It's going to it's going to arise some somehow. That's the nature of dukkha, the first noble truth. And uh, and when this consciousness comes together like that, you know you can very easily be sort of caught up in a in in, in the herd in this herd mentality that sort of uh, that that goes. And it's, sometimes it's very difficult just to sort of see uh, see the, the just the truth of, of your individual universe. You know, because we, when we look out, I look out my window here now. It's quite a sunny day here now in Perth, and and you know I can see everything out there. But I but I at some level, though, I know all that is just a phenomena of my mind. My mind has constructed all of this as complex and as wonderful as it all is, mysterious as it all is. But if I come back into myself and come down with uh, using my meditation to get deeper and deeper into myself, I can see that this consciousness is um, it's dukkha. Mm-hmm. You know, it is, it's probably the last bastion of dukkha, really, just consciousness itself. Mm. But as you get sort of deeper into your mind and you kind of get right to the stillness of consciousness, you know what con- still consciousness is, 
you you know then you've got the chance to sort of penetrate deeper into the consciousness itself and there you see that everything finishes mm-hmm. you see you see clearly that there isn't a self there at all you know uh, Ajahn Ram uh, has got a wonderful ways of sort of saying this his dream about the driverless bus you know which is pretty well known in our in our community uh you know just such a you know a, it's a just a, a truthful way to see the way that it is but when consciousness stops, you can actually, uh, it's, well, it's, it's a, an oxymoron to say that you can know that consciousness has stopped, but it's not that you know at the time because you don't really know at the time when consciousness has stopped, but when you've practised and you know what mindfulness is, you can use your mindfulness to know, oh, hey, something happened there, and then you can sort of come back into mindfulness and, um, and mindfulness will replay the whole thing. Mm. Now, and you can see, you can see, this is a house of cards. You know, we're, we're living in a house of cards here. This is, you can see the, the wheels within wheels and the boxes within the boxes, you know, going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper back, back in the, into the way that uh, everything is constructed, the way that everything, is, everything comes about. And then you realise that this I, this ego, this Dennis, is not, you know, there's nothing there at all. It's, you know, it's just a, uh, it's a delusion. But it doesn't feel like a delusion. <laughs> <laughs> it all feels totally real. But it's only when you start to practice and you get to the depth of that. And you need, you know, as you know too, you need the whole of the eightfold practice to sort of get you there. You can't just sit meditation and, and, uh, and, and get there. You've got to make your life in harmony with all of that. So, you, you know, just to make, make sure that you've got a certain moral level that you're living your life on and you're not you're not doing things that harm people or you know and you're practicing kindness and all of those things that the buddha talked to us about mm. well dennis uh, i think we might wrap it up there i do want to thank you for taking the time to share your experiences and recollections about the establishment and growth of the buddha society and i think perhaps it's a good time to thank you for all your efforts over uh, the last four decades uh, to help establish the Buddhist society, your contribution to that. Uh, I do hope that you'll come back again and talk to us maybe about your interest in death and past lives, perhaps. Yes. That's <laughs> all. It would be good if we can do that. But thanks very much for coming on today, and certainly we wish you all the very best. Until then, may you be happy and well. That's all we have time for in this episode of Treasure Mountain. If you've liked this episode, make sure you subscribe to Treasure Mountain Podcast via your favourite podcast app so that you can get our next episode. And in our next episode, we're going to have I.S. Antusica coming from California in the United States talking about her path into the practice and becoming a nun. It's quite an unconventional story. Stick around for that. So make sure you subscribe to Treasure Mountain Podcast. You can find out more about Treasure Mountain and subscribe to our mailing list by going to www.treasuremountain.info and you can find Treasure Mountain Podcast on Facebook too. I'd love to hear your feedback. Who do you think we should get onto Treasure Mountain Podcast next? What questions would you like to be answered? Let me know via the contact page on treasuremountain.info or via the Treasure Mountain Podcast Facebook Thanks for joining us and I hope you join us next week as we see you.